Digital Gonzo Histories, a brief history of comics and the Ultimates, part one, superhuman. I am Iron Man. You think you're the only superhero in the world? Mr. Stark, you become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. Who the hell are you? Nick Fury, director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Huh. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. Welcome back to Digital Gonzo. This week I'm turning my journalistic Gonzo X-Ray plus heat vision onto one of my very favourite comic books. One a lot of you won't have heard of, but by the end of the show you will either be ordering from Amazon or at least find yourself looking forward to a few more Marvel movies coming in the next year or so. My guests this week are Leia Haydu from Some Other Castle. Hello. Joshua Garrity of One Winged Muffin. Hello. And from the Digital Cowboys community, Jerome McIntosh and Paul Gibson, better known as JMCI and Flying Muttley. Good evening. Hello. So I'm going to get back in the gonzo groove by firing up an explanatory, informal, educational essay on the subject with pauses for talking points with my guests. First up, I would imagine only a handful of my audience are avid comic readers, so to contextualise this review and bring you all up to speed, I'm going to summarise seven decades of comic book history in about five minutes. From 1938 to 1950, there was a period known as the Golden Age. This was when consumers were seen as naive and easily pleased. Most of the stories were strips about detectives or early sci-fi. Mighty Mouse, Kazar, Flash Gordon, The Phantom, and Mandrake the Magician all had their origins here, as well as forgotten clag like Nelly the Nurse, Millie the Model, Sun Girl, Rex Dexter of Mars, and The Blonde Phantom. Most of DC's beloved heroes surfaced around this time, including Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Aquaman, and The Flash, and the only significant Marvel characters were the Submariner, an android human torch, and Captain America, who was Marvel's first truly popular costumed hero, and concerned himself mostly with punching Nazis in the gob to inspire the nation as they went to war. This all petered out, and comics nearly sank with the revolution of television in the home, an event that also nearly fucked cinema in the bin. Does anyone know anything about the Golden Age? A little. I uh, I actually just watched a um, a documentary. Um, I don't I don't recall the name of it, but it was something off of Netflix um, with you know Stanley and a lot of uh, a lot of other uh, kind of influential people in the industry. And I I, I know a little bit about it. Um, I actually have done um, my my thesis in college uh, was. Um, about comic books. It was actually about The Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Yes. And uh, I did a lot of background research for that, so a little, little bit of a background there. I remember hearing that on uh, some of the castle and thinking, I've got to email you and ask you to send me that. Could you send me that? Absolutely. That would be awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, I remember seeing a documentary when I was uh, uh, younger, actually. It was about the comic book code, and uh, around the sort of mid-50s, comics were being reviled as corruptors of the young. And there was this... Brilliant moment when it, 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 have you ever seen Reefer Madness or any of those sort of do not do this type uh, informational sixties sorry fifties films? Yeah, yeah. Right. Picture the scene: two kids are down by the lake reading comic books. You know, in our eyes today, that's like an idyllic sort of like past thing that kids don't do these days. These days, kids stand beside a bin full of burning grannies texting each other. But um, <laughs> back in those days... So yeah, it's showing these kids, and they're reading comic books, but apparently this was a bad thing, because when one of the kids finished reading about zombies or something in the comic book, he got up and started stabbing a tree with his penknife because he was just so angry, and angry inside because of the comics. And then he turned around and looked at the back of his friend's head and reached for a rock. Uh, it was basically... I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was 
was put together by this one guy who had a hair up his ass about comics and wanted to uh, to have them stamped out before they corrupted the youth. Uh, yeah, so hence the comic book code started, which kind of coincided with the opening of the Silver Age, actually. So um, that's when the superhero thing started, because they were trying to sort of veer away from all the zombies and horror and sci-fi comics. So they, they went for sort of more wholesome um, characters who were much more, uh, you know, clearly, obviously trying to save people. And, you know, since they had the comic code stuck on it, no one could accuse them of trying to encourage children to hit each other in the head with rocks. There is uh. a book about that. Um Ten Cent Plague or something like that, mm-hmm. which is about all the Senate hearings and all that sort of thing at that time. Yeah, there were Senate hearings. <laughs> uh, okay, right. We, we will have a reading list in the notes. <laughs> Against all odds, the Silver Age was what followed because between 1961 and 1966, five years, there was a brief but incredibly intense period of creativity at Marvel Comics when a young Stan Lee teamed up with anyone? Jack Kirby. Yes. Five points, and occasionally Steve Ditko to create the most iconic Marvel superheroes of all time. Fantastic Four. Actually, uh, anyone else want to just tell me what's on this list? Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yep. <laughs> the Hulk. Yep. X-Men. Yep. Iron Man. Yep. Four. Yep. Silver Surfer. Yep. Uh... Daredevil. Nick, oh, yeah. Fury of, Nick Fury of Shield, uh, Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme, oh. and uh, oh, of course, the Avengers. How could you forget? They were all created between 1961 and 66. It was either Stanley and, and Jack Kirby, or Stanley and Steve Ditko, who did uh, basically everyone was Stanley and Jack Kirby, apart from Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, who was Steve Ditko, and. It's, there's a lot of dispute about exactly who created the Silver Surfer from the sounds of it. Jack Kirby drew him into an episode of uh, Fantastic Four where Galactus was going to turn up. Mm-hmm. And Stanley was like, whoa, who is this crazy new shiny silver character? Jack, you've gone off the rails here. And Jack explained who he was and that, that you know, Galactus is going to need a herald. And it all sort of stemmed from that. But Stanley wanted to do all the writing for him. So it's, it's mainly attributed to Kirby. And also, Kirby was a man from space. Have you ever actually you know, sort of looked at the stuff that he came up with? He's, 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 he's crazy. He's not of this earth. A, a genius, though. <laughs> but also, you know, Stan Lee cannot be underestimated in here. He may not be able to write good dialogue, but by God, he, could he create long-lasting characters? So let's think about that for a moment. With the exception of Wolverine in 1974 and a handful of others, pretty much every significant comic superhero was created between 45 and 73 years ago. It's not even like we've been starved for quality, talented creators in the comic business either. Much has been made of this pantheon of costumed heroes appearing at a very specific time. They've been dubbed by many to be a 20th century take on the Greek legends. And really, when you consider what followed, there's a certain purity and resonance in the notion of a relatively uncomplicated individuals, each being bestowed a power and impelled to either save humanity or crush it. It's a romantic and timeless image unmuddied by the darker characteristics of modern heroes, which explains why they endure, even while they're adapted for the times. I think it was uh, an amazing period where lots and lots of ideas were flying everywhere. Now, we all remember the good stuff, but we forget there was a lot of crap as well. I, oh, think, yeah. there was, I think there was a villain who had, like, sweat that was, like, nitroglycerin, and if he sweat on you then he would explode. Oh, my day. (laughs) See, the crap of the comics of yesterday is the food of the video games of tomorrow. Yeah. 
Uh, actually, I can't remember exactly when this was, but the Green Lantern's ward for a while was an Eskimo chap named Pie Face because of his slitty eyes. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And the whole Eskimo pie thing as well. Oh, God. So, yeah, that, it, it, there was some racism. But I think that was back Just in the a little bit, actually. <laughs> So what followed the Silver Age between the years of 1970 to 1985 was a period of refinement, making these stories more modern and relevant. Um, as I recall, there was a Spider-Man where Harry went on drugs, and they never said what kind of drugs it was, but it was drugs. And uh, I think that was actually preceded uh, by uh, Green Arrow's ward Speedy got onto the, the smack oh. in, uh, in, in DC. Uh, that was uh, you know really controversial and uncompromising in its day. And they, they were saying, you know, Drugs are bad, kids. Um, okay, other things that may have happened, the uh, all-new, all-different X-Men and the death of Gwen Stacy, which, by the way, I'm really holding out for for the new Spider-Man series. Mm. Seriously, if they start now with Gwen Stacy as the love interest, they could kill her within three uh, movies. That'd be fantastic. Seriously, to see Peter actually fail that badly. It'd be interesting. Yep. Okay, uh, new characters with vigilantes and anti-heroes like Ghost Rider, Nick Cage... Nick Cage? Hang on, Luke Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip there. Nick Cage l- named himself after Luke Cage and uh, Blade and the Punisher. He, dude, he could have called himself Blade. He then missed in, an opportunity there. <laughs> he could have called himself the Punisher. Then in 1985, everything turned on its axis. Uh, first up, DC Comics retconned 40 years of tangled continuity by consolidating all the alternate worlds into one timeline in... Anyone? Oh, God, I don't know. Crisis on Infinite Earths. Oh. I feel like a teacher here, anyone? (laughs) Uh, Then a young man named Frank Miller, who'd cut his teeth creating and then killing Electra in Daredevil, penned... Anyone? Dark Knight Returns. Yes. Batman the Dark Knight Returns, in which a 55-year-old grizzled Bruce Wayne, who looks like Marlon Brando after a steroid-filled pie-eating contest, dons the cowl for the first time in ten years and kicks the living shit out of a Gotham overrun with punks who never knew to fear the bat. At exactly the same time, Alan Moore wrote... Watchmen. Watchmen. A piece of clever, austere social commentary looking at irresponsible and selfish masked vigilantes and the ethical quandary of the one true superhuman. By today's standards, it's still very good, but back in 1986, it kicked over the established dining table of comic books and showed that this was now a medium that could be written for adults. In the same way that video gaming community is continuously growing, the original comic book readers had by now, by virtue of their maturity, created a new market. Unfortunately, the 90s, coincidentally when I started reading comic books, were a dark time. Video games were growing in popularity, so something had to be done to draw teenage males back to comics. What occurred was actually something of a boom, but the repercussions would be severe. In 1992, Image Comics was formed by several, at the time, high-profile Marvel illustrators as a way of retaining the rights to the characters they created without paying dividends to the big labels. Among them were Jim Lee. Actually, anyone else know who else was on this uh, first startup line? No, sorry. Yeah, um, no, I don't remember. I'm going to um, kick myself in the My knowledge isn't that good. Todd okay. McFarlane. Yes, Todd McFarlane. And Silvestri. Mark Silvestri, yeah, well done. That's about all I can think of at the minute. Uh, Eric Larson, the uh, artist behind the Savage Dragon. Rob Liefeld. Anyone ever read X-Force? 
Yeah, I have. Yeah. <clears throat> Talk about him in a second. Uh, Jim Valentino and, uh, I love this guy's name, Wilts Portaccio. Bear in mind that these were illustrators, not writers. They were seasoned in drawing grim badasses with massive spiky shoulder pads, big swords, big guns, chains, tattoos, and magic powers. Most new supergroups, and by jingo there were a lot of new supergroups, also had a chap with claws, one with a cyborg arm and a terminator eye, and at least one who could use his liquid metal form to make knives and stabbing weapons. But by and large, these men were not the arbiters of particularly compelling stories. Now, Todd McFarlane, who originally worked on Spider-Man and helped make Venom a major character, created... Spawn. Spawn. A dark hero with vaguely theological undertones, but mostly all big ugly demons dropping by his alley for a chat and a look at his rocket launcher and head stabber. This, in turn, only added fuel to the conflagration of dark hero comics aimed at teenage males with low standards. The high price that Spawn Issue 1 was fetching on the secondary market led to series after series being commissioned by not just Image, but Top Cow, Awesome, Wildstorm, Valiant, Cliffhanger, and every other publisher in the hope that everybody buying these soon-to-be-valuable first issues would keep the industry afloat. The problem was that if everybody bought them in the high shipping numbers and variant chromium holophile covers that were saturating the shelves in Dark Hero shovelware, then none of these issues would be worth a tinker's cuss on the secondary market, and it was a bubble that positively had to burst. Marvel, in the meantime, starting with Atlantis Attacks in 1989, were busy churning out crossover series that spanned multiple comics and necessitated the buying of various books you wouldn't normally pick up in order to get the whole story. Anyone read this? The Age of Apocalypse? Oh. I, I sort of followed it a little bit. I, that that was, I guess, that would have been around the time that I was getting into comics. Pretty that hard. was pretty much what kicked me off. Um, it, while it's one of my favorite Marvel series, involved re- renaming eight core X books for four months plus specials, meaning you had to buy more than thirty-eight comics to complete the epic story. Now that's fine once in a while, but it was successful enough that they started pulling it more and more, cross-pollinating their books and launching more and more X-Men related series until nobody had a clue what was going on. The artist-driven books were getting worse and worse, churning out dazzling first issues with eight different covers of various limited edition, with guest cover artists and convention exclusives. Then two-month waits for issue two, followed by a year for issue three, if it ever came at all. This was disastrous and cheapened what had already become a ritzy, glamorized Las Vegas shadow with Batitude of the Silver Age. All the while, the best writers in the business, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Frank Miller, Garth Ennis, Warren Ellis, and more, were working on adult-themed comics in DC's prestigious new Vertigo line, leaving artist-centric work to cater for the Silver Age heroes. Marvel ended up doing so badly that in 1996 they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. As a result of this, they were taken over by Toy Biz in 1997, which saved them and also brought on board Avi Arad. Arad pushed them towards finally licensing out their characters piecemeal to the various movie studios, which coincided with the evolution of special effects to a point where they could accurately portray the comic action to the big screen. The Toy Biz affiliation allowed them to reach a whole new generation of kids who had been raised on the animated series of X-Men and Spider-Man. Now, I know, Leia, you like the old X-Men cartoon. Oh, yes, loved it. Me too. Anybody else like the old X-Men cartoon? Oh, very yes. much. Very <laughs> much. <laughs> Both of which had absolutely massive and successful toy lines. The movie licensing allowed these characters, which had never been shown on the big screen, to reach an audience of teenagers and adults, starting soft with a relatively obscure... Anyone? Blade? 
Blade in 1998, which proved highly successful and then paved the way for X-Men in 2000 and then the Eternity in pre-production Spider-Man in 2002. Suddenly Marvel was back and they made some very shrewd decisions regarding their comic properties at the time. Firstly, they recruited some of those fantastic writers I mentioned earlier, including Powers scribe Brian Michael Bendis, Rising Stars writer J. Michael Straczynski, Transmetropolitan writer Warren Ellis, and Wanted's Mark Miller. Then they did what set the tone for the next decade of entertainment, and that's entertainment in pretty much every medium. When you have a long-standing IP with a built-in audience but are finding it very hard to net newcomers because of the convoluted years and years and years of plot, anybody? Start again. <laughs> yeah. Reboot. Reboot. Thus came the Marvel Ultimate Universe, running alongside the 40-year-old continuity, which continues to this day. The Ultimate books took place in a new world where Peter Parker could get his powers again, Charles Xavier could form the X-Men again, and Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D. could recruit Earth's mightiest heroes to be the Avengers, or as they're referred to in this form, the Ultimates. This actually wasn't the first time they'd rebooted the characters. In 1996, after the lengthy Onslaught crossover that had most of their non-mutant heroes walk willingly into a temporal vortex, apparently killing them, but in reality setting up Heroes Reborn, which restarted Iron Man, Captain America, the Fantastic Four, and the Avengers in a new universe, mutants were the only thing making money in the regular universe, so why not shake some life into the old properties that weren't pulling their weight? But this only lasted for 12 months, and one of the artists they employed was image defector Rob Liefeld, who has proved himself time and again to be an arrogant tosspot with only one style of drawing, which is pinch-faced, hulking, shoulder-padded monstrosities covered in pockets, even, and especially, the women. So Heroes Reborn was a financial success, but didn't last and nobody liked it. The Ultimate Universe, however, was immediately and consistently popular. It was and remains ongoing. And as a postscript, in 2009, Disney bought Marvel Studios for $4.24 billion. That's a lot of bucks. It's a lot of money. <laughs> okay, so uh, my guests, briefly, uh, notes on the uh, modern age, or as it's often called, Iron Age of comics, and uh, what are your comic book reading histories? Uh, let's start with that, uh, ladies first. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, I, I guess I would have started right around kind of the beginning. I, I have um, an uncle who's not a whole lot older than I am, and he has um, tons and tons and tons of older comics. And the one that he started me off with was uh, X-Men. So mm. X-Men's always been my favorite, and I've always uh, in particular followed um, the Phoenix stuff uh, in its many, many, many forms. Mm. Um so yeah, I mean one of the one of the really earliest series that I remember following is the the reboot of X Men that they did in like the I guess it was the early nineties or the mid-90s. Jim Lee one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, originally, I think that was the the last gasp for uh, Chris Claremont, wasn't it? Yes, I believe. I believe he's so. the guy who basically has every X Men just announce what their fucking power is before they use it. <laughs> the sum totality of my psychic power is focused into this psychic blade. Just say it. Just do it. You don't even have to think it. Gene, you know this Ruby Quartz Vizek. Shut up, Scott. <laughs> it's it's not clear, you know, until you actually tell them that's what you're mm. doing. <laughs> just just uh, at the beginning of the book, just say what everyone's power is, and then move on. Yes, but uh, that's that's about when I when I started. Um, I kind of fell off of comics for a little while, um, but then in college I got back into it, uh, and it. I, Hang on, I what missed, year would this have been? Uh, let's see. That would have been around two thousand. Right. Um, so my boyfriend at the time and I, um, I miss our old comic guy because he was, he was so sweet and he was so 
completely like he was one of the stereotypical like just totally flaky completely out there comic book guys uh but he knew us he knew which comics we were going to go for we didn't have him we didn't have a pull list because we just kind of like to go in and you know pick everything up and see what else was there but right. uh we were we were definitely preferred customers we had you know a 200 hundred dollar a week comic book habit and it, jesus yeah it, we were we were on a lot a lot of st- i sound like i'm talking about drugs we were on so much stuff <laughs> Yeah, when um, when I was talking uh, when I was talking with Alex here about um, coming on on this recording, I said, you know, I, I actually used to have all of the ultimate stuff. I actually used to have the individual issues, um, but when my boyfriend and I split up, there's nothing sadder than nerds breaking up because then you have to split up all of your stuff. Like it's, it's the, almost worse that you like the same shit because then you know it's not going to be divided like, amongst who likes the video what. games were pretty easy because it, it they kind of fell into a, you know a pretty clear division. The comic books were hard. Like there, there were a few that went definitely to one of us, or definitely to the other. But yeah, there were, there were some things. There were some things that just fell directly in the middle, and we we kind of had to bargain for them. But he ended up with the ultimate, so I had to uh, restock. Did you get the graphic novels at that point? I did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I suppose that's a little bit cheaper than having to go track on each individual issue, including Ultimate Spider-Man number one, white cover variant. Oh, Jesus. God. I bet my uh, my old roommate probably has that. She's very, very into Spider-Man. That was always her thing. When uh, my dad is a huge, co- he was a huge comic book fan when he was a kid, and he has he has a huge collection of them. He, he used to have a huge collection of them um, up in the up in the loft, and it was like a huge like huge bags full of them. And when I was younger, um, in in the nineties, I was about eight at the time eight it was so it would have been 1998 um he got them down from the uh the cellar and he showed me all of them and he has uh, loads of the uh, silver surfer comic books he used to really love silver surfer and i was reading them as oh this is amazing oh well my childlike brain didn't register you know it was poorly written dialogue at the time but it was just so amazing the whole like mythology because i still like silver surfer to this day even though there was that crap fantastic four movie but um it was just that mythology that draw me in um nowadays i'm a bit more um i'm i'm not so much into comic books all the time it's more someone tells me something's great and Mm. uh and i'll go all right i'll check it out oh wait this is amazing how how come i have uh, never read this before um so i'm not i'm not hugely into comic books all the time but every once in a while someone will uh you know pass me a copy of something and I'll be like oh yes I'm into it again mmm snow stale beer and defeat you know I hate to say I told you so general but that super soldier program was put on ice for a reason I've always felt that hardware was much more reliable Stark general you always wear such nice suits touche here you have an unusual problem you should talk you should listen what if i told you we were putting a team together who's we jerome your thoughts on comics and when did you start basically it would probably be around 2005 my cousin got his first job 
And the mm-hmm. first thing he did is start collecting the X-Men comics. Mm-hmm. And whenever I went up to see him in London, he'd always catch me up on what's going on with the X-Men. And each time, like every few months I'd go, he'd start a new collection. And a new collection, I started getting more into... Like, my favourite X-Men were Wolverine and Gambit, and mm. then he introduced me into the Silver Surfer and Galactus Saga, and nice. then with the Incredible Hulk, and I've never been so much as always following comic books, but whenever I go see him, he recommends a bunch of different comic books. I end up coming home and buying them. So this has only been for six years or so? Uh, yeah, about so, yeah. Um, if it's not a rude question, how old are you, Jerome? 22 this month. Mm. So you started really quite late then. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Whereas my my cousin carried on with the Western style comics, so I got more into anime and manga. Mm. So it's sort of we exchange different stories whenever we meet up with one another. Right, let me just go and sort out Lara because she's jabbering from the other room. So hold on a second. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> And I, just, I started when I was young, and then I went away for a while, and then I came back, and then I kind of backed off again because it's so expensive. Yeah, it gets that way. Mm. Especially when alongside a gaming habit. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't have cheap habits. I couldn't just have a cheap habit. Again, we've gone into drugs territory, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why can't I just take marijuana instead of all this heroin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't. Add, I didn't really get into gaming until my mid-teens, because everyone talks about how, oh, I was playing my NES and my SNES when I was oh. like eight, five years old, and I'm like, I, I didn't get into it until I was like fifteen or sixteen with my PS2. Same so, here, Josh. <laughs> yeah, I was one of the youngins with that one. Come oh on, yeah, I was oh. too. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> You're all right. All right. Okay, so uh, same question as Paul. Well, I've just said a bit to these guys, but I probably started reading um, a couple of years back, five or six years back now. Um, the One of the local game shops in the town I live in, they had a separate store within the same building upstairs, comics store. Mm-hmm. Wandered up there one day, just wandering about, started chatting with the guys in there and left with a couple of trades. Um, it's always a bad idea to get chatting with guys in a comic shop if you've never really been. To stuff <laughs> yeah, before. I think I went in there for a t-shirt stuff. and left with comics. Uh, <laughs> ones that I don't recommend to anybody as the first real comics, but um, Grant Morrison's Invisibles, oh, which God, is just weird. But it kind yeah, of it's a great comic, but just weird. Yeah, and it's not a good way of eating you in. No, no, it, but it sets something going, and around about. The same time I picked up the Ultimates and Grant Morrison's first chunk of X Men. Ah, new X Men. Oh, that is so good. Which Ooh, yeah. yeah set me off on a good footing, and I've pretty much been reading dribs and drabs since then. Yeah, but uh, you know, only really trades and kind of fit them in when I can afford them. I'm amazed they were like, yeah, let's get this new guy. We'll ease him in with the Invisibles. That's mental. There was a whole conversation. Give someone something nice and easy to get into. There was a whole conversation about the Matrix and Mm. things like that. Oh, if you like the Matrix, you'll love this. You know what? You know what? I'm fairly certain that's how my comic book guy back in York managed to convince me to read the Invisibles. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's probably a standard thing. but And since then, comics, podcasts and things like that have just kept me ticking along with things to look at. 
So The Ultimates was created by the dynamite team of Mark Miller and Brian Hitch. You'll find that most of the best comic writers come from these British Isles, and Miller, not to be confused with Irish-born Frank, is a Scotsman. He started out, as so many of them do, on 2000 AD. His big break came when he replaced another Brit, Warren Ellis, on The Authority, an exceptional book I'll be talking about later on, a different gonzo. He also wrote Wanted, which was taken and ripped in half by Russian director of Nightwatch, Timur Bekmambetov, and then adapted loosely for the screen, and... By loosely, I'm talking $2 haul. The first half is pretty accurate, and the second half should have been a conspiracy theory-laden plot about supervillains taking over the world covertly in the mid-80s, but got switched for bullet-bending assassins played by Beck Mambatov's friends. <laughs> More recently, Miller also penned the graphic novel for Kick-Ass, which was adapted in close collaboration with the author by comic-loving, excellent and always dependable British-born Matthew Vaughan, who incidentally was thrown off the X-Men 3 movie, but asked back for X-Men 5, when it turned out that American Brett Ratner was not only an unsuitable replacement, but unconcerned with quality, coherence or personal hygiene, and mentally incompetent to the point of criminal damage. Actually, while I'm at this entirely unfounded slander of Brett Ratner game, I may as well say that he's the reason the PlayStation Network went down, he's the one hiding Half-Life 3 in his basement, and he's an unabashed dog fucker I'd believe it Miller also wrote the excellent Superman Red Sun Ultimate X-Men Marvel Knight Spider-Man Ultimate Fantastic Four Marvel 1985 and the immensely popular Civil War which I think also deserves a gonzo show of its own he was also on the Marvel team that collaborated with John Favreau when adapting Iron Man for the big screen an action that marked the beginning of the unified Marvel Cinematic Universe and a definite upswing in quality for Marvel's more movie output Brian Hitch was the artist for The Authority in several issues of Stormwatch, its original incarnation. He has a very long bibliography, including X-Men, Fantastic Four, Captain America, The Avengers, Green Lantern, JLA, Teen Titans, and The Transformers. He also drew the original Captain Planet and the Planeteers comic way back in 1992. Anyone remember the Planeteers? Absolutely. I the card. <laughs> there was a comic. Brian Hitch drew it. And if anyone remembers this, Death's Head. No? Didn't no. think so. No. It's... That's, that's going to be something that the, the British comic-loving people go, oh, that's head. One thing you may have seen of his and not even realised it is several designs for spacecraft in the recent return of Doctor Who. Huh. The interior of the TARDIS is all Brian, and if you've seen the episode The Empty Child, Jack's ship was designed by true Brit Brian, and Rose's Union Jack t-shirt, along with her blonde hair and no-nonsense attitude, is a sly reference to Jenny Sparks from The Authority. Hitch also designed Spock's involuntary time-travelling ship in Star Trek XI, and was the design artist for the video game Incredible Hulk Ultimate Destruction.
The Ultimate starts off with the story we're about to see in the upcoming Captain America the First Avenger movie. Steve Rogers wants a weakling too shrimpy to pass the physical requirements for a USGI in World War II, now transformed into a muscular super soldier, sent to rally and inspire the troops and help them shoot the dull-drilled, docile, brutish masses of the Hun soldiery. Um, I've only got two notes here. Parachutes are for girls... <laughs> and oh here's another one uh, this is going to mean absolutely nothing to Leia but after listening to Cap's you know opening talk at the beginning like, he's so incredibly inspirational he's like come on over here there lads we're going to shoot the Nazis in the face and get out of here and we'll be back at home for kippers and breakfast he reminded me of Ace Rimmer Ace Rimmer <laughs> <laughs> it's true I'd never thought about it before but he's so like Ace Rimmer yeah thinking about it he really is I mean, he's just, I mean, it's, it's only because he's a caricature of, like, the kind of guy you'd want to follow into battle, specifically adapted for World War Two. But, um, yeah, anyway, he foils a Nazi rocket plan and ends up dropping into the sea where he's frozen for decades, only to be thawed out in 2002 and immediately recruited by the fledgling Avengers team headed up by Fury. Now, there's one little reference here that is so cool, so clever, and such a moment of its time that it can never be repeated again. It's so obscure, but... The bit where Nick Fury says to, uh, to Steve, now, you, you know, you're going to go crazy, but you've been out for 57 years, and he goes crazy and freaks out and runs out of the hospital. Anyone know what that's a reference to? No. Off the top of my head, aliens. But Yes, it's aliens. Burke tells Ripley, and she freaks out and has a dream. She gets burst out of by an alien. But, yeah, that's... It, it, it was literally 45 to 2002 was exactly 57 years, and it's exactly the same scenario. And it just must have hit Miller at some point while he was, he was writing. He was like, oh, shit. Right, I've got to do that. <laughs> so it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, when Fury talks to him next year's Avengers, he'll go, 67 years, <laughs> which isn't quite the same. So, okay, right, I've got two questions here for you guys. Why are the Ultimates set up? How, in your understanding, why did, uh, in the Ultimate Universe, why were they set up? And also, why do you think Marvel took this angle with the Avengers in 2002? I get the feeling the reason why the uh, Ultimates were set up is because there is this huge explosion of super-powered people around mm. that time. Um, <laughs> They make reference to, like, an attack by Magneto on New, uh, New York City. Yep, that was in Ultimate X-Men. Oh, hang yeah. on, it was in Washington. Oh, right. Well, well, they, well, they're talking about, right, we can't let, like, something like that happen again, or something mm. similar to that, whatever. So they're trying to create, like, an elite, almost like commando specialist unit uh, designed specifically to target any kind of supervillain threats. Mm. Or, in fact... Uh, like mutant threats or anything like any superhuman threat whatsoever. Mm. Um, it's oh, where, where did I read that? I think no, it was. I think it was actually Bruce said um, that he was diverting uh, the American military funds away from like a large scale army operation and more towards a small group of superheroes to counter a smaller, more localized threat. Something he'd been making notes for General Ross for years. I think a big part of it too is it's it's a PR thing. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a PR stunt, but it's definitely involved with that because particularly if you, you're familiar with um, stuff like um, 
the X-Men and even in this volume of the Ultimates, if you, uh, like towards the end, um, where, you know, you find out that if you didn't already know that the Wasp is actually a mutant and she's been hiding that because she doesn't want to take the backlash for it, people mm. are scared of, of these superpowered uh, humans that are running around. And since there are so many of them, they kind of want to see that they're under control and mm. that they're kind of for the greater good instead of just being loose cannons out there. They need a police force that can deal with it. Just, just the fact that they have a PR person that, uh, you know, Betty Ross, she's actually their PR. That's her, you know, she's the communications director or whatever, and she, you know, her job is kind of to manage how people see them. If all they are is a fighting force, then why would you need that? It's, I, I think it's as much an image thing as anything else. Yeah. Now, this series was released in March 2002, six months after the events of 9-11, and it shows. In the book, several months beforehand, there was an unexpected brawl between Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate Hulk, portrayed in an almost cavalier manner in Ultimate Marvel Team-Up number 2 and number 3, which, by the way, was written in May of 2001. This left the Chelsea Piers area of the ultimate New York City in ruins, and the people frightened of another super-terrorist attack. Interestingly, the similarly supergroup-themed, politically-charged book The Authority was being written by Mark Miller up to September 11th, and was censored and then cancelled because DC Wildstorm was somewhat justifiably afraid of causing offence and uproar from a wounded and hypertense nation. The Ultimates appears to be all about the protection of innocents from external threats, but there is a subtext of the complications that come with absolute power being wielded by a branch of the US Defence Network that runs throughout the series, so the spirit of the authority most definitely lives on in this body of work. Has anybody else read the authority? I have, yes. Fucking awesome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was really, really good. That's another one of the ones that I lost in, in the oh. split. But um, did but you yeah. reacquire them in graphic novel form? I have not yet. But that's that is that's the next on the task. List. Yes. <laughs> but no, it's it's fantastic because it's almost like an alternate universe of the mm. of the Avengers. Like it's it's really close in in tone but yeah. it's i hate to say this but it's more edgy almost well yeah because they can they they still can't even really properly swear because it's not vertigo but they do say that, that, that it is a lot more adult in tone and there's some like pretty horrific gory moments in there which you wouldn't get in this but uh yeah that's uh you know as of september 11th that series has it's it's resurfaced a couple of times but it's never been the same it becomes immediately apparent that Miller and Hitch are designing this to feel like a movie, and for that matter, the most incredible movie you ever saw. They make constant cinematic references, even going so far as to have Nick Fury cast each Avenger in a hypothetical film that now in 2011 will hopefully be seeing the light of day within the next year. In 2002, though, it was a different cinematic world, X-Men having been out less than a year and the first Spider-Man film only just launching. Marvel were being cautious about what movies they optioned, and at the time, the original actor pitched to play Bruce Banner and referenced in this book was... Steve Buscemi. Yeah. And then it became Eric Banner over the time, and uh, that was a good idea, wasn't it? Other castings put out by Fury include lantern-jawed, one-note acting Lazybones Matthew McConaughey to play... Hank Pym's Giant Man slash Ant-Man. All right, all right. Asian Lady of the Hour, Lucy Liu, to play his wife, Janet Pym, the Wasp, and Hunky Blonde, and uh, I believe at that point attached to Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt to play Steve Rogers. Was yeah. he, I mean, anyone up in I this? I think so. That sounds yeah. right. 
Ten years later, and Brad's getting on a bit now, pipped to the post for patriotic stardom by Chris Evans, a man who's already brought another Marvel character to the screen in the shape of Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. Now, my wife said, no, he can't be Captain America. I said, I, I think he's going to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I think that's going to happen. I always thought that um, people. I said it won't seriously. I always thought that, um, and and this this is something that I've been laughed at before. But just just think, James Vanderbeek. Yeah, it'd have been good. He's got that very square jawed, yeah, all American look. Yeah, the important thing is to be able to make him look like he came from the 40s. Right. If he's a little bit too modern looking, it doesn't work. He's got to be kind of classic. That doesn't preclude Hitch, however, from actually drawing the character to resemble Brad Pitt. Although in the next book, Ultimates 2, I don't know if anyone else noticed this, it's Thor who looks more like Brad Pitt, Mr. Angelina Jolie. And suddenly Steve looks like a grumpy Antipodean Renaissance man, Russell Crowe. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't actually. notice that. The biggest star, it's when Thor is down, and you know the moment I'm talking about, we're not going to spoil anything that happens later, but when Thor is down and it's raining on him, he looks exactly like Brad Pitt. It, it, he's got this, these really sorrowful eyes. And uh, has anyone else seen Thor, by the way? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. Cool, yeah. me too. <laughs> I really want to see that too. It's, they've taken their cue a lot from this and a lot from the classic Thor. It's, it's a little bit goofy at times. It's, no, it's nowhere near as hard-edged as this. Um, but it's, uh, it's, got a li- it's got some of it, and, and he definitely appears to be modelled more on what um, this Thor looks like, yeah. but doesn't act like. This Thor is really quite, uh, what's the word, jaded? Yeah. But he's, he's, he is the pure Thor in the film. But that kind of works, because he's got to be up against uh, Tony Stark. And Tony Stark in this is is nowhere near as impure as Tony Stark in Iron Man. Right. The biggest irony heaped upon irony, however, in a twisted case of art imitating life, imitating art, which was already imitating life, is Nick Fury, who was drawn to be the spit of Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) Bear in mind here that between 1963 and 2001, Fury was an aging white man with grey temples who looked more like Martin Sheen. So this was a definite and obvious departure for the Ultimate Universe. Fury even casts Jackson as himself, giving a knowing wink to the camera, although with the eye patch it's hard to tell. Apparently Jackson got wind of this and was so tickled that his wife bought him the original concept art framed as a birthday present. And then seven years later, in the Iron Man movie, we finally got to see the bad motherfucker in a role that was adapted exclusively to personify him in a moment of such tumultuous geek feedback that the entire internet nearly exploded. He's only in it for like ten seconds. Interestingly, (laughs) Tony Stark is modelled after anyone? Johnny Depp. Yeah, in this. Who, pre-Pirates of the Caribbean, he even says, from hell's Johnny Depp. And I'm like, dude, oh yeah, he was in from hell. (laughs) Pre-Pirates of the Caribbean was a bit more of an indie star suited to roles in Tim Burton and Gus Van Zandt films. It's quite easy to see him playing Stark, although now with his preference for Jack Sparrow and trotting out the same tired routine that assures massive financial dividends, forsaking the virtuous charms of joining Terry Gilliam as he once again attempts against all odds to make Don Quixote... I'm rather incredibly relieved that the studio went for that other actor. There's even a line in The Ultimates where Cap apologises to Fury for breaking his nose, and Nick Fury replies, not to worry, it's been smashed more times than... Robert Robert Downey Jr. Jr. (laughs) Did did you remember that line when you first read it? I was like, whoa! 
Oh, uh, and uh, he was he was at the time in 2002. I think he was really washed up at that point. He hadn't really been in anything particularly significant since Two Girls and a Guy, and it was a long time before Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Ultimate Stark is very different from movie Stark, who is different again from classic Stark. In the Ultimates, he's dashing and charming and rather more thoughtful than the Tony we love. For reasons we'll go into at the end, he's decided to be a lot more benevolent towards the world. And in fact, in the absence of Downey's twitchy mannerisms and winning improvisation, this Tony's actually rather dull which surprised me. Though it's easy to see how they adapted a lot of the more outlandish characteristics from this version, which weren't present in the original, to make the movie version. So there's a reason that cinematic incarnation is so memorable and indebted to this one. Rogers, Stephen. Just give me a chance. Sorry, son. You're saving your life. said that wars are fought with weapons, but they are won by men. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. Our goal is to create the greatest army in history. I should be going with you. Look, I know you don't think I can do this. This but... isn't a back alley, Steve. It's war. Every army begins with one man. Five tries in five different cities. I can offer you a chance. He will be the first in a new breed of super soldiers. Because the weak man knows the value of strength, knows the value of power. That wasn't so bad. That was penicillin. We are going to win this war because we have the best men. Now, Mr. Stark. They will personally escort Adolf Hitler to the gates of hell. Okay, so compared to the classic Marvel Universe, which changes do you consider good and bad in this? And actually, um, does anyone, is anyone a fan of the Avengers? You know, not the Ultimates. I, I always thought they were kind of boring. Like, I, if you're looking for a super team and you've got, you know, the Avengers on one hand and you've got the X-Men on the other hand, the Avengers, I mean, that's kind of always the problem that I had with Captain America, too, before this, was that he's... He's boring. He's, you know, this very upstanding citizen who's going to go and punch bad guys in the face, and there really aren't any complications or anything bad. He's just, you know, he's out there and he's doing his job, his patriotic he's duty. Noble. Yeah, he's he's like Superman, you know. He's nothing's mm. really going to mess with him, and there isn't any dirt in his past that you can that you can exploit. He's just a good guy, and. Yeah. I hate to say it, but really, really 100% good guys are boring. They are yeah. boring, at, particularly in this kind of medium. And uh, I, I like that they kind of dirtied the characters up a little bit. I love the new incarnation of Nick Fury. Love it. Love it. Love oh, it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> yes. Don't we all? No, I mean, I, I've read a fair amount of the, the newer Avengers stuff which some of this sort of thing seeped into a bit. but mm. and Yeah, as in the one with Spider-Man and Wolverine. Yeah. Uh, New yeah. Avengers, yeah, the Bendis series, that was good. Yeah, really was. And some of that's come from this, but the earlier stuff I've just never got on with. Mm. Um, mainly because it is all ridiculously overpowered people. Yeah, that, that's kind of a problem. I mean, yeah, they're very, very tough, but then you can only send certain kinds of uh, problems up against them. Can't you? Because, you know, the, the invasion of the scrolls, and that's pretty much it. They're the big guns, and so unfortunately it means that 
um, smaller problems, which would normally be prove more complex and interesting, don't usually tra- come their way. Yeah. So there, there is actually a bonus for the X Men being somewhat depowered and uh, more mixed up. Um, so yeah, let's you know the, look at the ultimate changes to it. They're obviously they're fucked up and dysfunctional in this in comparison. It's almost bleak. Mm. Oh, it does get that way. Mm. I mean. Yeah. It's, We'll save the Hank and Janet bit for the very end, because yeah. that's where, where it comes and in. But the Tony bit that's tied in with that as well. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, but I mean, like Thor, for example, you know, in, in his original incarnation, he's, uh, he's a very virtuous Superman-like character who's like, ah, you must come and drink mead with me. But in this one, he's uh, an eco-warrior who, you know, turns his nose up at the U- US and, and, and criticizes their foreign policy and says, no, I'm not going to help you guys. You're, you're assholes. And, and you, care, you don't care at all about the rest of the world. And so he, he, he doesn't want to be a jackbooted thug for America uh, in, in his eyes, which is, you know, uh, considering the, uh, the, the climate at that point, was pretty fucking brave for them to put that in the book. Sure. Because you could see how, you know, it, you know, a lot of people would be like, well, Thor's an asshole. But a lot of people would also go, guy's got a point. It's a bit of a counter to Cap in this one as well. Mm. Because at points in this, he's, you know, he's a real ass. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you've got that tied into the whole, you know, to him, 1945 was 10 minutes ago or whatever he says. So you've got an interesting bit there, but at times really being an ass. See, I'm a big subscriber to the whole uh, No Country for Old Men thing about, you know, that there's always been psychopaths and there's always been crime and there's always been people who do horrible things to one another. But I don't know, back in the 40s, was it different then? And Steve sort of grew up in a lovely, quiet neighbourhood in New York where nobody ever robbed you and what? I suppose not, but it's, uh, that's the way he's portrayed in it. You've mm-hmm. got him going back to the old neighbourhood and reminiscing about what it was like and how it's horrible now compared to then and all that sort of thing. I have to disagree with you, actually. Um, I I don't think it was so much he felt that the world was worse than it was. Uh, When rereading it, I just got the sense that he felt like an alien, like he felt like there was nothing that he, you know, that was familiar to him, nothing that he could... um, you know, nothing that he could attach to, nothing from his past apart from America itself. Yeah. So, so the st- if you read the book, it's not so much that he's complaining about how the world is horrible. It's just that it's not the world he knew, and he feels like a freak because of it. Yeah, that's true. The um, and there's the, stuff the whole with, thing with the flag. Yeah, um, that, if that was on film, I think the British audiences would probably groan. But for some reason, in the comic, it works. I don't know why. I mean, in a, Leia, in America, I can only assume that American audiences do not groan when suddenly the American flag gets whipped out and they try and make you get all patriotic. It, well, it depends on your audience, but in general, no. It's it's uh, it, it makes more sense, I think, in, in that context. Um, yeah. And particularly, I just. Captain America is such a weird character to me because, like I said, I before he was kind of one-dimensional, and now he's just, because of that one-dimensionality, he's like one of the most messed up characters in this whole thing because mm. he's living 
he's he won't let go he won't let go of that 40 years ago and he knows that it's screwing with him but you know he wants to be friends with his old friend he wants to you know see his old his old fiance he is living in the exact same place that he was living before despite mm. the fact that he has the money to do you know so much better and it's a hole now it's just it it's really he's sad he's really sad i think yeah if they bring that into the film, it's going to be quite heartbreaking, actually. When he um, goes to see Bucky, and, and Bucky, who he left in his 20s, is now in his 80s, and the woman he that Steve was going to marry, Gail, has ended up marrying Bucky, and she won't even see him because she doesn't want him to see her, an old woman, is is genuinely heartbreaking. And there's some great sort of emotional holding on their faces at that point. It's Again, that's a very cinematic moment, and uh, if they bring that in to the Avengers, because I'm assuming it's all going to be the 40s for uh, the Captain America movie, and then now for the Avengers, then that could be, that could quite get people. I don't know. It's, it kind of feels a bit like Forever Young. Yeah. Anybody uh, ever I, seen I that movie? Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's kind of in, in the way, too, that, you know, whenever you see him showing up for meetings and stuff, he shows up in his full army uniform, you know, mm-hmm. with, with everything very... Uh, very in place, very proper, and yeah. it just, he doesn't seem to get, well, I, I mean, it, it's not even that he doesn't get it, it's that he just doesn't want to assimilate as much as he recognizes that things are different. He's not going along with that. It, he's He kind of embraces the fact that he's from a different time. And he can't switch off either. Yeah. It doesn't really go much into Tony. We, we don't really get to know him much. It's, I actually bought and read the uh, Orson Scott Card um, to, uh, Ultimate Iron Man book, which uh, actually gives out some background to this, Tony. There's almost nothing of correlation between the two of them. It's Orson just going off the rails and creating weird shit about blue skin that stops his brain melting. Oh, it's uh, that one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Orson Scott Card's the guy who wrote the fiction behind... Shadow Complex. Shadow Complex, yeah. I didn't realise when I read it that he was, like, ridiculously right-wing. But I can tell you right now, he's ridiculously boring. So, uh, yeah, don't bother with Ultimate Iron Man. Oh, the other thing that pissed me off is it's six issues long, and then it just sort of stops halfway through an action scene. You're like, well, I guess I'll be buying Ultimate Iron Man Volume 2 then. No, I won't. I was bored for this one. So that, that wasn't a full story. Either way, avoid that. There's almost nothing for Tony to do in this. He sort of turns up and goes, hello, old boy. And it's quite rich and very pleasant and um, personable. And I th- I, like I said, I'm just kind of missing Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony. Yeah, 
I agree. Yeah, pretty much. The fact that he's so rude to people, the fact that he's so, not exactly abusive to Pepper, but so reliant on her to the point of madness. Um, there's a lot of me and my wife in those two characters there. That's what, that's possibly why I'm, I'm always remain my, my favorite uh, character. She, she is, my wife is as patient as Pepper and <laughs> just as beautiful. And the, she sort of, she keeps him going, keeps him sane, etc. But there's none of that in this. No. He's just there. And, and also I prefer the, uh, the, the computer version of Jarvis. His version of Jarvis, somewhat creepy. <laughs> Doesn't he mention that at some point as well about Jarvis creeping him out? Yeah, yeah. I think in it's when they're talking. Talk- I like the little throwaway reference to "Weren't you going to go out and hang out with Alfred?" I thought that was funny. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that was neat. Let's go hang out with these, all these other comic book butlers. Uh, yeah, that, that's all for Tony. We'll come back to him a bit again. Where there's a little bit that defines him, but there's, there's not much for Tony in this book. Uh, Nick Fury again. Really on the ball, really interesting, really sort of uh, something of a hedonist. And, um, yeah, it's just Samuel L. Jackson, basically. He didn't get to have his big shouty thing in this because he's just sort of kicking back and grinning and happy that he's there. But he's got that same swagger. It's, it's you know, whenever Samuel L. Jackson turns up and everyone's like, you the man! He's like, yeah, I know! That's how Nick Fury comes across in this. Bruce Banner and the Hulk. Bruce in this is a dick. Yeah. So, yep. I mean, I, I can understand why he's in pain and why he's got sort of somewhat little man syndrome and why he, he's he's kind of happy to meet Captain America because it's sort of the guy that the the, the brand X formula thing that he's been looking for for all this time and he's suddenly put in the same room as him, but he he constantly feels like he should be doing more and he constantly feels ashamed of what he just done as the Hulk and he constantly feels a danger to people and he broods all the time and he moans all the time and if Ed Norton had been like this in the Incredible Hulk, it would have and sucked. However, as a member of this team, it kind of works because it makes him a troubled individual and it actually, you know, I, I, Mark Ruffalo is playing him in the film, the third person actor to play um, Banner after Ed Norton kicked off at Marvel. Um, I think uh, Ed Norton insisted on certain script changes that he implemented to Incredible Hulk, which clearly worked because I really like the Incredible Hulk film. But um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Mark Ruffalo does with this this role because he's kind of he, like I say, he's an asshole. And also Betty, mm. I can't actually say the word that I think about Betty because there's ladies present, but she's <laughs> one of them. Ouch! <laughs> no, seriously, she she, she goads Bruce on purpose. She actually goes on a date with Freddie Prince Jr. in the book. And then boast to Bruce about that just to piss him off, to make him feel small. And, you know, obviously the, the whole Hulk thing happens as a result of that. Betty is as fucked up as Bruce. Oh, easily. Definitely. Yeah. Cameos. As I said, Freddie Prince Jr. is in this. This is off the Hulk something chronic. Yeah, that wound me up a bit reading it this time. But Oh, yeah? Why? Because he's a nobody now. No one well, else <laughs> that and obviously we've said... Most of the main characters are based off actors. Yeah. You've got George Bush in it. Yep. Larry King. Actual George Bush. Like, talking to Captain America, going, what do you think of the 21st century there, Cap? Cool or uncool? Yeah. Um, Larry Cap King. Cap doesn't lamp him in the face and say, you're shitting on the American dream, Bush. That, that's actually pretty funny, just because I can actually see that sequence taking place. Like, they, they didn't... They didn't pull punches, really, for that. No, that's true. 
but you've got Larry King, Shannon Elizabeth. Yep. It gets Who at fairly time constant. <laughs> like, you know, it was yeah. just after American Pie, so Shannon Elizabeth was the, the tits at that point. But, uh, yeah, now she's like sort of, oh, that one. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, Larry King's still kicking it, and that, that's great to have him. I, I, I would love to see if they could get Larry King for the actual film. It, it does give it some grounding, I suppose, but it is... It does start dating it when you get to Freddie Prince Jr. and yeah, yeah, Shannon and Elizabeth. I suppose that would be Justin Bieber these days. <laughs> oh God, that'd be even worse. Oh. move on to the actual bit where, uh, where Bruce lets out the Hulk. It's it's obvious after a while that Bruce is not going to be happy with just being asked to create more and more super soldiers and they're all nervous about the fact that there are no obvious apparent threats so uh, out of a, a possible you know, he actually admits that just because Betty made him feel small and pathetic that he wanted to feel big and angry again, um, he lets out the Hulk and he injects himself with a mixture of super soldier serum from Captain America's blood and Hulk serum and creates this really huge, angry, grey Hulk who is the nastiest Hulk that I have ever heard of. Definitely. He brutally murders dozens of people. You know, you don't see it, but you hear about it, and it, it is said. He drinks several kegs of beer, he steals some guy's pants, and he's horny. And he tries to eat Tony Stark's head. This is the the most scary, worst Hulk I've ever heard of. I would never want to face this guy, ever. Uh, it, it's actually frightening. And, and uh, you know, bravo to Miller and Hitch for figuring out how to make the Hulk actually a source of destruction rather than just fun. There is I a Hulk really that like I it. find worse than this Hulk. Oh, yeah? Red Hulk, if you've ever... I've never read Red Hulk. What's the difference with Red Hulk? Red Hulk is a pure force of nature, literally. No Bruce Banner. You can't get through to him. All right. He, he absolutely... Dish- you can't penetrate his mind. Does he talk? Attack. No. Right, so he just screams and smashes stuff. Literally. Dude. So would you recommend that as a uh, a series to check out? Definitely. Right, so he's worse than Greyhulk in this. Basically, Charles Xavier and Magneto are joined together and they can't beat him. Sort of thing. Okay, right. Bear that one in mind, folks. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he's doing this, and he's tear-assing his way around the city. Now, I'm fairly certain this is going to be the central action sequence of the Avengers movie. They'll be fools not to. Thor and Iron Man and Cap versus Hulk. I really like what they've done with the Hulk in this as well, mm-hmm. in that he's not just the usual Hulk yeah. smash everything else he is which made him sort of pitiful and childlike he's yeah he's all of Bruce's worst impulses he's like an angry teenager literally angry horny and he wants to fuck and eat and kill going into psycho babble a bit but he's the complete personification of the id yep nice bang you know everything that Bruce wants but would normally not do yeah and normally the Hulk is a toddler. That's why uh, little kids tend to like The Incredible Hulk. My daughter loves The Incredible Hulk, as he's normally portrayed. 
um, in in the cartoons. But this particular Hulk, like I said, is a darker and more sort of you know side of a of a, a, a slightly more mature, but only slightly. I think that's part of what makes him so scary in this, and yeah. so intimidating, is he that he's not, you know, you can't just wait until he gets tired and drops down like you would mm. with a little kid, you know. He actually knows what he's doing, he yeah. is very aware of everything that's going on, and he does not care, he just wants what he wants. Yeah, mm. and he also talks about himself and Banner, so he's, he's angry at Betty for leaving Banner alone, mm. he's, you know, as, as an alternate personality, it's it's really quite... Well structured as a psychological argument. I mean, he's also filled with Banner's self-loathing as well. He's kind of looking for someone to put him down. Um, and uh, we'll talk about actually what happens to Hulk later on if we do another Ultimate show. But it's kind of sad. Definitely. I don't know how much you guys have read of Ultimates 2, but uh, yeah. Okay. So the Ultimates take him out. Uh, first off, Iron Man has a go, and then he tries to eat his head, and then Cap drops a tank on him, and then he tries to, to eat Captain America, and Cap kind of almost beats the shit out of the Hulk, which is un- seriously unlikely, but at the same time, it kind of shows that he's tough enough to, to, to go toe-to-toe with him. Again, I'd really like to see that in the actual film. And then Thor comes down and smashes him with Mjolnir. Now, there's one thing that they sort of that make it different for this Thor, and that's that he might be crazy. He might be lying. Yeah. He might just be a crazy guy with a big hammer that can actually do these crazy magic tricks, but not actually the God of Thunder. And it leaves you with these seeds of doubt that are actually sown into something really rich and interesting for Ultimates 2. And uh, that's, again, that's something I really hope they do. If they do an Avengers 2, I really hope they actually do that. Because even though the story that they've sown in, uh, in Thor the movie is different, I could see how they could almost do that. I haven't seen Thor the movie yet, and I would really like to. But I I love how they how they handle Thor in the Ultimates because th- that's another character that he was just kind of boring. He yeah. he you know he's the son god of the god of thunder, thunder, and he's you know he's storming down to take things out with his godly powers, and nobody questions anything. But in yeah. the Ultimates, you know they tell you straight up that he has done time in a mental institution. He could just be a mm. crazy hobo with mutant powers for all we know. Yeah, but or he could be you know. He could be the what he says he is. Son of Odin. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's this sort of ambiguity there, which you don't normally get with Marvel comics. So then you know it's it's over, and then the cult of celebrity really kicks in at this point. Suddenly the Ultimates are huge. Everyone loves them. They're on talk shows. They're doing the talking thing, and it's a really fantastic send up of what was becoming the reality TV revolution of the uh, early 21st century. And suddenly everyone's everywhere and famous for doing anything. And these guys basically saved the world. Well, at least New York from Hulk smashing the shit out of it and are about to save the world from the scrolls. And uh, it's totally believable that if there were superheroes, then this is exactly how they would be treated. Okay, so then there's <laughs> the rather unpleasant moment between uh, Hank and Janet. Now, we haven't talked about Hank and Janet that much, but Hank is a, is a brilliant scientist. Yeah. He's just not as good as uh, Bruce Banner. And uh, he, he kind of has little man syndrome, and a lot of his... Um, his technology, from the sounds of it, is reverse engineered from Jan. Uh, her, she's a mutant, and he, um, you know, uses he distills her uh, blood or essence or something like that into a, a formula that will allow him to grow and shrink. And so he's kind of like piggybacking her abilities. And he can also he's got this weird helmet that talks to ants, which you know, outside of the 60s, is pretty fucking creepy. Yeah. 
and um, they what's been a fairly cold relationship through the whole book suddenly takes a really nasty turn and just I had never read this in a Marvel book before turns into a situation of domestic violence and they start beating the shit out of each other and there's actually the, the most unpleasant thing about it is that at one point Hank actually almost seems to be enjoying it. Yeah. When she starts zapping him with her wasp stings and he goes, you know, crazy and, and attacks her with ants when she shrunk and then bugs, no, bug sprays her, then attacks her with ants and, and goes all cold and distant. And it's like, this guy's crazy. And this is the worst relationship I've ever seen, uh, in a comic, uh, anyway. And, um, that's how it ends. The wasp is, taken out by uh, her, her own husband, and uh, he's, you know, cradling his head in his hands, going, Janet, Janet, what have I done? And you're like, for God's sake, not only leave him, but tell Cap. And she does, and Cap, well, then Cap's come up and in, the next, uh, in the next episode. But it's just, it's, I will, uh, a spoiler warning, giant man versus Cap, and Cap beats the living shit out of a giant. It's great. Using a building site. And his knees. And then you also get the revelation from Tony that um, uh, unlike the uh, the heart situation, he has an inoperable brain tumour in his head the size of a golf ball that's going to kill him between five months and five years. And But he's so cavalier about it that you're... It's, it's almost more disheartening and, and saddening that, you know, he's kind of accepted and completely prepared for death. It's kind of like Tony was in Iron Man 2. I don't know if you guys have uh, seen that, but... Yeah. Anyone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The palladium turns out to be killing him, and uh, it's in his, the core of his heart, and so he, he starts giving all of his stuff away, which is directly lifted from this, and um, and just basically preparing for the end. And it's it's really odd and sad to see Tony Stark, not defeated, but preparing to, to face a foe that he cannot surmount. And uh, and that's it, it kind of leaves the whole book on a sort of, oh, note. It's exciting and it's sort of, you know, portent for the future, but at the same time it's it's a sobering note to finish on. You know, I'm not going to spoil exactly what happens to Tony over the next few uh, books, but um, I, I, I still wish we had more Tony. And I still wish he was as good a Tony as the one in the movies. But, um, but like I said, he was what nourished that character into something even more uh, rounded than it could have been without the Ultimates. The MIT commencement speech? Is in June. Please, don't harangue me about well, this stuff. Well, they're haranguing me, way so down. I'm going to say yes. Well, deflect and absorb it. Don't I need you to sign this before you get on the plane. What are you trying to get rid of me for? Do we have plans? As a matter of fact, they do. I don't like it when you have plans. I'm allowed to have plans on my birthday. It's your birthday? Yes. I knew that. Already? Yeah, isn't that strange? It's the same day as last year. Well, get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it was very nice. Yeah. Very tasteful. Thank you, Mr. Stark. You're welcome, Ms. Potts. So the Avengers in other media. Unlike the X-Men or Spider-Man, Hulk, Iron Man, Silver Surfer or Fantastic Four, the Avengers never had a popular cartoon throughout the 60s, 80s and 90s periods when the above heroes received theirs. Unlike all of the above, along with Blade, Ghost Rider, Daredevil, Electra and The Punisher, they also haven't had a live-action movie made about them yet. Please don't watch the 1998 movie The Avengers. That's something else, and it's very horrible. (laughs) This is mostly due to the legal and copyright ramifications of having a single project with four Marvel powerhouses at its core. In this case, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, and although he's not in The Avengers all the time, he seems to be involved with them a lot recently, the Hulk. 
There was an ill-fated and short-lived cartoon made in 1999 called Avengers United They Stand, attempting a story with none of those heroes present on the roster. It was led by Ant-Man, there was Hawkeye, um, oh, I remember Scarlet Witch was in it, and Tigra, Tigera, there was a tiger girl. Tigress. Um, Tigress. There's a reason most of you have never seen it. <laughs> there were two straight-to-DVD animated movies. There were only 13 episodes of that. It was cancelled almost immediately. There were two straight-to-DVD animated movies based more specifically on the Ultimates, named Ultimate Avengers and Ultimate Avengers 2 Rise of the Black Panther. They're okay. But uneasiness about some of the mature themes leaves these productions very middling. Too violent for small children and not smart enough for adults. I mean, has anyone seen anything that came out of Lionsgate Animation that was actually any good? Uh, did they do the um, Wolverine versus Hulk one? And- I was going to say, that's, I think that's Marvel Studios. I'll double check it. But um, I really like Wolverine versus Hulk and Wolverine, uh, to, to a lesser extent, Wolverine versus Thor. Or Hulk versus, sorry. Hulk versus, Hulk versus Wolverine, Hulk versus Thor. Did uh, they do the Doctor Strange anime? They did, yeah. Was that any good? It was okay. It's not. Yeah, that's what I mean. They're all okay. Yeah. None of them are absolutely terrible. Mm. Ah, see, Hulk versus was distributed by Lionsgate. So, okay, Hulk versus is the only one that's really worth seeing. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, they did Planet Hulk as well. Oh, that was quite good, actually. I saw that the other day. Um, but again, quite good. Mm. Uh, actually, the one thing that was remarkable about Ultimate Avengers was a new line they added to it for no reason at all. When Captain America goes into battle at the very beginning, in the uh, comic he says, What are you waiting for, you, you apes? Christmas? And in the cartoon version, he says, Let's take this dump. Which is the worst line <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> He's referring to the Nazi base, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Soldiers, let's take this dump! However, hope is in sight, as in 2010, an animated show launched that for the first time was produced in close collaboration with Marvel, something that's made sure the movies have been of high quality more recently. Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, takes all of the characters from the Ultimates, who also incidentally represent the classic Silver Age lineup. That's Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Hulk, Ant-Man, Wasp, Hawkeye, Black Widow, and also Black Panther. And I might add, there is no domestic abuse between Ant-Man and Wasp. Uh, and I've watched the first 20 episodes and can attest that this is the best animated series Marvel have ever produced, just edging out the spectacular Spider-Man and Wolverine and the X-Men, which are also incredibly good. I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. The story runs the length of the series, starting with focused character-specific episodes and branching out to an epic scale. It's closest in turn to Justice League Unlimited, with an interlacing Marvel cast of dozens. It feels like the operatic-in-scope X-Men and Spider-Man animated series of the 90s, but far less cheesy, with some intelligent dialogue and some really well-timed one-liners.
The first 13 episodes are available on DVD in the States, and doubtless when the Avengers hits our screens next year, UK distribution will pull its finger out and Earth's Mightiest Heroes will emerge on our shore. On a side note, this series has been incredibly effective at cementing these heroes in my daughter's head. She now loves Captain America, Thor, Iron Man and the Hulk, going to, so far as to sit patiently through the movies of the latter two just to catch a glimpse of the heroes in live action. Now, we will probably do an overview Gonzo show looking at every Marvel movie, but the relevant ones here are the upcoming Captain America due at the end of July, the currently showing Thor, Iron Man 1 and 2, and the second Incredible Hulk movie. All of these not only cover the characters in a way that appears very much inspired by the ultimate renditions, but unlike every Marvel movie made before 2009, actually fit together in continuity with recurring guest characters and cross-pollinating cameos. And then, of course, 2012, The Avengers, written by and directed by, at the moment, before he gets kicked off the project, Joss Whedon. When I heard this, I was like, Jesus, apart from Matthew Vaughan, Joss wouldn't be my first choice because I'd be worried they'd be kicked off the project. Matthew Vaughan would have been my first choice after seeing Kick-Ass and the fact that he clearly loves superhero movies and uh, we'll see with the X-Men First Class. But Joss Whedon, if it actually goes through, could make this the best superhero movie ever. God, I hope that sticks. I hope that sticks. Oh, I really do. (laughs) Uh. So I'm going to leave on the hopeful note. That'll be that'll be it. Um, the, you know, so yeah, basically, the Ultimates is now available. Uh, that's book one, Superhuman, from Amazon for I believe six pounds forty one p with free shipping. And really, if you if you want to get into comic books and you haven't really been before, this as opposed to the Invisibles is a really good book to start with. It really is, and if you've got an iPad or an iPhone, the it's available on the Marvel app as well. Oh, true, true. For about How much? One pound twenty an issue, I think. Serious? Oh, so one nineteen an issue. So about the same price. Or you could jump to Marvel.com and subscribe and just read eight thousand comic books in a row. <laughs> that would take a <laughs> long time. Yeah, six pound forty on uh, Amazon. There are three more books worth looking at for the time being in the Ultimate Continuity. Uh, Ultimates. Uh, what's the second? Ultimate. Ultimates Volume Two: Homeland Security. Yeah. Uh, the, the second volume is actually just called Ultimates 2, as if it's the sequel to the original, uh, again, treating it like a movie. Ultimates 2, Volume 1, Gods and Monsters, and then Ultimates 2, Volume 2, Grand Theft America. Now, the third volume of the Ultimates, they, well, um, Mark Miller left and uh, did not resume writing duties, as did Brian Hitch with inking duties. And uh, they brought in Jeff Loeb, who is the most changeable, unreliable writer I know. He he is capable of writing stuff like Batman The Long Halloween, Batman Hush, and Ultimates Volume 3, which and also Ultimatum. I don't know if anyone's ever read that. It's basically the end of the Ultimate Universe before they decided whether or not to carry on with it. So, everybody dies. I haven't read it, but from here no, I haven't either. It's the most awful book ever. Basically, everyone goes to try and kill Magneto, and he just does this, does this almighty war, and everyone dies. Sabretooth uh, yeah. eats Archangel. <laughs> it's just it, it's Jeff Loeb going off at the deep end and it's amazing because the guy's capable of such brilliance but from what I read of Ultimates Volume 3 it was just one sudden cameo after another it's like oh my god Sabretooth has turned up let us have a fight and it was just it's going back to the fucking like early 90s in terms of um, continuity just what makes sense and what looks cool uh, astonishingly, it, with the Ultimates, they managed to balance what makes sense and what looks cool, so it makes perfect sense and looks very cool. 
Definitely. But uh, anyway, so yeah, avoid the fuck out of Ultimates 3, even though it's penned by Joe Madureira, who was one of my absolute favorite artists from the 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, again, similarly unreliable in terms of, you know, when he actually got to go off on his own and make his own series Battle Chasers, that petered out after a while. And uh, there's a video game link in that he did all the concept art and designed everything for Darksiders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. All right, so that's it. That's all from us on the Ultimates. We will definitely be doing another comic book one because I have had colossal fun tonight. Uh, thanks to everyone for having the patience for listening to us all the way through to this. Combine, pimp your blog. Okay, uh, you can find some interesting uh, articles on onewingedmuffin.blogspot.com. They are very, very good. Leia. Uh, I'm actually on two shows right now. Uh, my primary show is someothercastle.com. Uh, podcast name is Some Other Podcast. That's me and uh, my very good friend Elaine. And we go every two weeks. Usually we go on Fridays. Um, so look up for that. And I'm also on the Game Hounds podcast, which is gamehounds.com. Um, and that is a slightly more serious podcast uh not game hounds is the serious one <laughs> compared to some other podcast yes <laughs> uh, okay so uh, which what tells do you, talk you about? a lot yes, but what do you talk about on these shows leah i'd like to know uh well i talk about actually uh video games video games <laughs> sorry just yeah. couldn't it's been so long since we got shit. okay <laughs> so um half right yeah <laughs> okay, so yeah, check these, uh, check out Gamehounds, who were the guys, I might add, who got us noticed by the, uh, the greater American community, so definitely check them out, and they are strengthened greatly by uh, the presence of Leia, as I think I said on episode 201, maybe 200, and, uh, of course, Some Other Castle, my favorite podcast ever. Aww. Aww. Okay, so that's been all from us. We will see you again. And before we go, I'd like to thank my guest, Leia Heyday from Some Other Castle, Joshua Gowdy from One Winged Muffin, and from the Digital Cowboys community, Jerome McIntosh and Paul Gibson. Thank you guys all for coming on the show. No problem. Thank you. And uh, what, what shall I shout for the... Uh... Okay, got it. Avengers Assemble. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Jerome. Right, there you go. Is it Ava- Avengers Disassemble? <laughs> okay, Bye. Avengers Disassemble. <laughs>
first aid kit. Do me a favor and don't be dead. Whoa, does he need CPR? Because I totally know CPR. Where did he come from? <sighs> you all right? I'm a... I'm a... Yeah, we can tell you're hammered. It's pretty obvious. Oh my god, Eric, look at this. We have to move quickly before this all changes. Dan, we have to take him to the hospital. Arthur! He's fine, look at him. Arthur! I know you can hear me. Open the Bifrost. Hospital, you go. I'll stay. You. What realm is this? Alfheim? Dornheim? New Mexico? You dare threaten me, Thor, with so puny a... <laughs> He was freaking me out! 